Today's episode is brought to you by Slate House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. <laughs> We're still I like how that. <laughs> That's what he does in the movie, right? It is. I think we talked about that. Okay, we can, <laughs> we can delete this. Okay. Um, hi, everyone. Welcome back to Slate House Publishing presents Lit Bits. I'm Jeremy, and with me as always is Curtis. Hi there. <laughs> hey, Curtis. How have you been, man? I'm good. I'm good. Good, good. Today we are digging into Universal Horror Monsters. Do you like what I did there? <laughs> digging. Digging. I do like that. <laughs> uh, I mean, puns like that usually take me a few hours to come up with. <laughs> you pulled I mean, that one right out. You're getting better at that. I did. I did. Yeah. I need to bring back Pun Monday. Um, <laughs> Dude. Call out, call out real Maybe. quick to – this is kind of on topic. This is on topic. But call out to Gemma Amore, on, who's an author. She posted on Twitter out of nowhere. She said, you know, um, I was caught shoplifting with a lime uh, at a grocery store with two vampires. Um, or I stole – I was – I was. how was it? How did it go? I fucked this up. I was arrested after stealing a lime with two vampires on my shoulder. She was caught shoplifting on two counts. <laughs> oh, man. And what a stretch that joke is. I know. That's, that's really uh, – So somebody asked – somebody posted and they said, why a two- lime – and she said, or no, no, she didn't. It was Trevor uh, responded and said, because she was sour. Oh, my God. Dude, <laughs> that's one of the best jokes of all time. It's good, isn't it? It's really good. <laughs> I came back with... Uh, Two counts. I, <laughs> I get it. I came back with... Uh, it's totally off, totally relevant. But I came back with um, um, our professor, our college professor, wanted us to read this controversial book in the hopes that we'd talk about it as we read it, but unfortunately we were all on the same page. <laughs> all right, let's stop the puns. You have let's... you have blessed us here on this Sunday with your <laughs> Maybe it could be Sunday pun day. Yeah. Um Let's talk a minute about the importance of Universal Studios and its impact on horror. Yes. Speaking of counts and Dracula and vampires. Universal Studios' monster series defined horror for a large portion of the 20th century. The shared universe spanned something like 20 years, give or take a few years. I mean, it was a long, long time. And it was. It was a shared universe. It was like monsters and characters who appeared in one film could appear potentially in later films. Right, yeah. Yeah. Like Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, the House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein, all of that stuff. Totally started that trend, huh? Yep. Um, our main source, aside from digging around the internet, um, is the Universal Studios Monsters A Legacy of Horror, which was written by Michael Mallory, and it has a forward by Jason Bloom of Bloom House Pictures. So kind of the new purveyor of horror on film. Right. So for the next few episodes, I feel like we're going to be talking about um, some of the biggest kind of uh, uh, names in universal horror monsters for the 20th century. Um, and today we're going to start with Dracula. Ah. <laughs> Just when we think we get away from this guy, he comes back. That's the nature of Dracula. Yeah. You right? can never get rid of him. He, he never leaves your podcast once you start talking He's about like him. the cockroach for podcasts. He's like, I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> How many times have you talked about me? One, two, three. <laughs> oh, wait, that's the Sesame Street guy. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Different guy. Uh, I'm like, that guy's always smelling my neck, man. Can we, can we not invite him back anymore? <laughs> um, so let's do a little recap to start off with, right? 
And the last time we talked about Dracula, we were talking about Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. And before that, we were in our Dracula five-part series, which I guess this could be included. So now we're up to like seven or eight parts. We're, we're going to have lots of parts. <laughs> um, uh, this this whole podcast is going to end on just like a Dracula, like huge, like explosion or something. <laughs> um, so when we last left the eponymous uh, – did I say that right? Eponymous? 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 Yeah, sure. Okay. I think that's right. I write these words and I don't ever listen to them. It's tangential all over again. <clears throat> the eponymous? The eponymous? The eponymous vampire. <laughs> the eponymous vampire. Nosferatu <laughs> tried to unofficially capitalize off Stoker's story without obtaining the rights and was very near, lo- very nearly lost to history when the courts ruled against the studio and against director F.W. Murnau. Not for if not for I keep like slurring my words. <laughs> what well, were in these donuts this morning? If not for Americans thumbing their nose at European courts, the film would not have survived, and we would not have that classic to this day. Ooh! But Th- thanks to a good old fashioned nose thumb. Thanks to a good, yeah, we Americans were great at it. You know, <laughs> just thumb our noses at you. Yeah, Nosferatu lives because of that. That should be our graphic for this episode. Just somebody like thumbing their nose. At, <laughs> Yeah, I've never I've never seen anybody do that. I'm gonna try it out. Sometime. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's walk down Dixon after this and just thumb our nose at people. See, if, <laughs> see how they respond. Uh, how dare you? But Stoker's widow Florence wasn't opposed to adaptions of the novel. In fact, as we said before when we talked about Bram Stoker's life, she was left in charge of Stoker's estate and his literary catalog after his death. Yeah. So if you remember from that series, the only dramatic performance of the novel during Stoker's lifetime came when he had the Lyceum troupe put on the staged reading so as to capture the copyright. But as plays were still popular in this time, Florence knew that a dramatic adaption of the novel could prove profitable. Yes. So, and she was all about making money. She, I mean, as any of us are, but she had this wealth of of information from Bram. She, Bram Stoker's estate was actually very popular still at this time. Right. So let's talk about the first iteration. So we haven't even started talking about the Universal horror movies yet. So, uh, oh, that's good stuff. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, my, of course, we record again when my allergies have flared up again. So yeah. naturally. Um, so Irish writer, actor, Irish writer and actor, we can edit that, but we won't. Um, <laughs> Hamilton Dean secured the rights first and adapted the play into a British version that played to audiences in 1924. Now, Dean's largest contribution to the story of Dracula is that he really played up the suave and urbane character wearing the tux and cape. Oh, Never is Dracula really seen in the novel wearing this kind of suave kind of look. He doesn't present himself in public as this kind of character. This was all Hamilton Dean's invention. That's okay. That's where that started. Yep. Hamilton Dean in 1924. Yep. Well, that's, nice. that's the first time the play was, was done, but yeah, when he was writing the script based on the novel, he's like, this is what I want the count to look like. And so it was right. nothing. You, you don't really find that in the novel. I mean, he's a count. And so he is of royalty, but he doesn't – the description of him in the book is nothing like what we see in the movie. Right. And Hamilton Dean's kind of influence on the character in the movie you know, started with this. Interesting. So, Very cool. Um, so yeah. So – and in fact, Dracula's magnetism over the women uh, was more about his predation. So it was more about him being a predator, right? Um, 
and seduction was more of a tool for that predation instead uh and less about masking his identity right right so since so the neck sniffing that i was just talking about right yeah it's all a, it's all a oh let me get close to you and then i'm you know and then right when the moment's right and the trust is built right now i will say this like in the book um jonathan harker is at least put off in the beginning by dracula's kind of urbaneness you know he he's very aware you know dracula is proper and he's very aware of english custom but yeah. that fades very quickly. And after that, once we're in London with all of the characters and Dracula's hunting, we don't see him engaging with the characters. And the next time we really do see him, he's with his gypsies and he's very much a monster. Right. So this idea that you see in like 1931's Dracula with him like moving amongst the 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 elites of society in London, um, that's that's – visualizing his predatory nature but it's not something that necessarily carried over from the book right oh, okay it's yeah, like yeah. he was he was more um he it was more about showing his his suaveness and kind of blending into public when he didn't necessarily do that in the book in the book he's more of the predator right okay so um so that takes us then so after the success of the british play that takes us to the american play um so it came to an American playwright, um, Broadway theater producer Horace Liverwright, which sounds very British to me, but he's an American, um, <laughs> commissioned playwright John L. Balderston to edit Dean's script so that it would more appeal to American audiences. So <laughs> Balderston took Dean's script and rewrote it, and he trimmed it down. He tightened the pacing. He eliminated certain ancillary characters. He um, he streamlined the entire play, and it became a hit. But that's not really – and even though this is the basis for the movie, that's not the best thing that he did for this. The best thing that he did was hire Hungar- Hungarian actor <laughs> Bela Lugosi in his first speaking role – to play Count Dracula on the Broadway stage. Nice. Very cool. Bela Lugosi. And Lugosi at this time did not speak English very well. So a lot of his lines, I think, were like the um, phonetically kind of spelled out so that he'd know how to how to like pronounce things. You know? Right. I think you see that with like musicians that they go and like sing their songs like overseas or something. Don't they do the same kind of thing like if they're in a foreign country and you're like singing your song in Spanish? Somebody like... I think I read this. I may be wrong. I'm asking, but I may be wrong. But like if they want to hear like, say, a famous single from a a musician in Spanish, don't they like phonetically spell it out so that like translate it and then phonetically spell it out in Spanish so the guy can just like mimic the, the words without really understanding what he's singing? That, I mean, I don't have specific knowledge on that, but that definitely sounds like something you would do for a, a... – Or we could just be making this up. Yeah, that's that's possible. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I want to look into that because that definitely sounds cool. But, I mean, it, uh, sounds, it sounds doable. It's it's probably how we would do things. I mean, really, if, <laughs> if it's something that would cross your mind, it's probably because it's being done. Probably. Right, yeah. Probably. I feel like I've learned that somewhere. <laughs> um, so Lugosi this, – so this is where he kind of – where uh, – I mean – yeah, this is where Lugosi first made his name. He was starring in the Broadway adaption of – or the Broadway play Dracula based on the novel as Count Dracula. And you would think, oh, well, then fine. That's how he got the job playing it in the movie. 
And if you thought that, you'd be wrong. Oh. Oh. So what <laughs> happened there? Yeah. Um, so in 1930, Carl Lamely, I think I'm saying that right. That's the same guy from the Phantom of the Opera episode. La, yeah. La, huh. President of Universal Studios. He he commissioned the Phantom of the Opera and, and kind of oversaw production of that film. He um, is still president in 1930. He bought the film rights to the play and to the novel for $40,000. That's like $10 million today. It's like $50 billion today. <laughs> At least. huge. Yeah. Um, so Lamely wanted to make Lon Chaney a star. He had already you know, cast Lon Chaney in The Phantom of the Opera. Lon Chaney before that was in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He wants Lon Chaney to be the star, and he wants Lon Chaney – not Bella Lugosi to be the vampire. Right. He is like adamant about this. But Cheney was stuck struck with cancer and he died a month before production was to begin. Oh damn. Even then, there were a whole host of actors that Lamely and the studio were considering before Bella Lugosi. He was not even on their list. <laughs> oh my god. Um and I, I, you can look up and see how many actors there were. I didn't recognize any of the names. I didn't put them in the here for the script. But there was like a whole host of people. They're like, well, what about you? What about? It reminds me of that Family Guy episode where they were talking. It, it must have happened right after they were like um, canceled and then renewed or something. Yeah. And at the beginning of the episode, they're which like, time? right, which time? But at one point in the episode, they're like, they're like, yeah, we can't believe we're back. And they're like, yeah, well, you can't imagine if uh, you know. Fox had a really full schedule. What if so-and-so was canceled? And they start listing off, like, Firefly and, oh, like, yeah, all these, we would, like, yeah, yeah. You know, like, 20 or 30 shows. Like, if you, sure, if all of these are canceled, yeah. then we might come, and all of them were canceled. <laughs> He's like, but that's probably not going to happen. Yeah, but that's not going to happen. Um, so, same thing here. So, it's like, here's this whole host of actors, and imagine being Imagine being the last. You know, they finally pick you, yeah. and then you're, like, on set, and you ha- kind of have a chip on your shoulder, because you're like, these assholes don't even want me here. Yeah. You're like the Tim Allen of... Uh... <laughs> oh, my God. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. um, well, you know, to Lugosi's credit, he really lobbied for himself. He really lobbied to Todd Browning, the um, uh, the director. He lobbied to Lamely. He lobbied to the studio execs. He, you know, he was like, hey, I am Dracula. I've played this role. I can do this. <laughs> yeah. And ultimately, they picked him. They're like, okay. Ultimately, he got on the nerves. He's like, <laughs> he's like the uh, he's like me went back in elementary school when we're picking teams for dodgeball, and they're like, I was thinking, I'll take so and so, I'll take you, I'll take you, and I'm just sitting there, kind of twiddling my thumbs, and they're like, um, well, who gets Jeremy? Yeah, and I'm like, please. <laughs> That's always a good feeling please. is when they're like, uh, I don't want him, you take him. <laughs> Kick that fucking ball into the hornet's nest, and that'll teach you Bobby Newsom. (laughs) It's funny how that right there, that social scenario plays out over and over in your life sometimes. Sometimes you're the kid that gets picked last on dodgeball. Well, and that was Bella Lugosi. Yeah, but he he successfully lobbied uh, on behalf of himself to get get himself into this. And he won. He won them over. They went, okay. All right. You've right. convinced us. So, <laughs> the movie's made. Lugosi becomes a really huge star for a time. He's he's one of the faces of Universal horror. Yes, he doesn't always play Dracula. Sometimes he plays other characters. And Frankenstein, I think he played um, Igor or Igor, whichever one 
however you pronounce it, for the original Frankenstein movie, or or maybe it was in Bride of Frankenstein when he's in that. Um, but he's you know he has reoccurring roles in the Universal Horror shared universe. Um, I feel like I just said universe a lot, but the universe of the universe, the universe of the universe, the yeah. shared universe of the universe. Yow. Oh, there we go. Um, I just pulled up a picture of this guy, and that is a dapper. Oh yeah, that's a dapper Dracula. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, he's very dapper. He's very intense. Ooh. There's lots of focusing on his eyes, and it's supposed to be this hypnotic kind of lighting. It's yeah. it's really fantastic. Well, they it's, must have had a bunch of great actors in line if they picked him last. They they did. They had a lot of names that were really popular at that time. And I I apologize to our listeners for not writing all those names down. But I mean, honestly, most would of anybody you know them? Yeah, most of you would have been like, uh huh, yeah. D- yeah. Were their careers even anything after that, or possibly anybody yeah. noteworthy? I mean, again, they they were in some of the articles I was looking at, and yes, including Wikipedia, some of them were like hyperlinked. So I feel like if you have a hyperlink to an article about you, then you must have done something noteworthy. You did something, yeah, yeah. I Crashed your car into a school building. <laughs> <laughs> it's like something. You're not famous. You're infamous, right? So yeah. Here's the thing to understand. Um, Eventually, it becomes a shared universe, but the Dracula premiering was not the first horror film for Universal Studios. In fact, it was actually about the 10th at this point. It's the first in their shared universe of horror stories, but it's actually about the 10th, uh, the 10th story over or the 10th movie overall. The very first one was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1913. And then in 1923, they released Lon Chaney and the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And in 1925, they released The Phantom of the Opera, which we talked about in the previous episode, right? In the the Nosferatu and Phantom of the Opera episode. Dracula didn't come out until 1931. And it was already, it was by then the 10th in their horror, like their series of horror movies. Yeah. It's the 10th movie. It's the first, though, in this what becomes a shared universe when characters start crossing over and start meeting in sequels, and and we realize this is all taking place in the same world. Yeah, um, yeah. that nineteen thirteen, nineteen thirteen. That was their first. That was their. It was a silent film, and that's some of the critique that's of amazing. that's some of the critique though of Todd Browning's Dracula is that if you read a lot of if you watch the film. There's a lot of parts where it's like just silent and the the actors are just kind of emoting into the camera. Right. And Trevor, if he were here, pointed out an important uh, aspect of this. He said it was hard for them to film movement and stuff while filming sound. So if you watch the, the movie, you'll see characters like cross through the scene or something and there's no sound to it and then the sound picks up when they're not moving again and oh and but they they treated it almost like it they almost they almost had the foresight of it of being like a silent film and it's like an after a thought of oh yeah now we can add sound to it and so <laughs> so there is a lot of silent film qualities to it right where you get close-ups of faces and you get people really emoting and and you know it's very much a stage production when you watch it um Really, so yeah, really different uh, vibes coming off. Of very different, like and some of it is hypnotic. Like they'll do this; they do this thing where they do a close up of Bella Lugosi's face. I think it was in that picture you pulled up, and um, they'll do a close up, and he's doing this hypnotic kind of stare, where it's like this: his eyes are wide, yeah. and his brows are arched, 
and they cast a thin beam of light. So like the forehead and the face are kind of shadowed and there's this beam of light that highlights the eyes. So you really get this hypnotic kind of intense stare from Lugosi. Oh, cool. Like a special effects. It's a little bit. very early special effects. Wow. And I can't wait to talk about in the future about Bride of Frankenstein. Um, because their special effects for that are, are just incredible for the time. Um, that is so cool. I'm I'm a I'm a big sucker for uh turn of the century special effects. Oh, it's um, so cool. Like yeah. there's what? miniature people in it. Yeah, uh, yeah, that like, that type of stuff. Yeah. My god. It's fascinating. It's, it's like eye candy for me at this point. <laughs> I just sit and watch those movies like, "Oh, look at that. Look at that." So, let's talk really quickly about how the the performance of the film, how the film performed uh and how it was released. It was it was a hit. Um it received widespread acclaim. Uh it received a lot of attention. It ended up earning $700,000 at the box office on a budget of $341,000, right? Boom. So almost or over more than so doubled its its initial budget. That's $13 million in today's money on a $6.5 million budget. Now, Not that bad. doesn't sound like a lot compared to like contemporary movies, right? That sounds pretty pitiful. Um. Those are a different animal entirely, though. Yeah. It absolutely yeah. was. Because remember what was going on during this time period, right? The Great Depression had ransacked the entire right. global economy. People were without jobs. They didn't have food. They didn't have – they were losing their homes. And yet they were still going to the movies to see this movie about a vampire. Right. And I think that's that's amazing that they had that box office success despite – the the struggles that were going on in the world at that time, right? And and an analog for today would be like how the pandemic's going on and everybody's got six different subscriptions on uh, for streaming. You yeah, know? it's yeah. like you still make uh, space for entertainment in your life. Yeah, uh, and that that proves it right there. Exactly. In the middle of the Great Depression, they they made profits. It was Dracula's success, and later that year, Frankenstein's success, which we'll get to in the next episode. Yeah, that really cemented. Universal Horror Studios um, kind of place in horror for, like I said, the next two decades. They were yeah. they were really able to to just kind of anchor themselves right there. Um, <clears throat> so, what do you think, man? Did you ever watch the original movies or? Uh, no, I just I kind of have like this nebulous uh, awareness about about that type of thing. I think a lot of people do really. I think yeah. they know they're out there. And, and and you're aware of how many things kind of like springboarded off of that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I never really engaged like one-on-one -on -one with one of those films. I never watched uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon or, uh, you know, uh, and that's one of them, right? It is. Yeah, yeah it's totally. one of the later ones, actually. It was a 1950s-something. It was in the 1950s. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we're talking early 1930s to mid-1950s. I mean, that's like. Yeah. I mean, we're we're talking twenty five years. You, um, the the aesthetic of it and the the uh, you know the kind of historical uh, context of it is really. I think we all get that. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I mean, growing up, growing up, it always looked a little bit silly instead of scary. Yeah. Which, which of course, it's just going to do that. Um, yeah. Uh, things do look a little ridiculous over time, but. Um, Dracula, oh man, that was my first, I think, awareness of, of Dracula was the Universal 
Yeah. You know, when I became aware of that whole and Rob Zombie as an artist, that was something that he uh dwelled on a lot and still does. Yeah. He, he's obsessed with uh, the universal monster uh-huh. uh characters. And I always thought that was cool because if you go to a Rob Zombie concert, his stage design looks a lot like that. He's yeah. got monsters like He's got like a giant robot like walking around on stage, and it looks like something from one of these movies. So Rob Zombie, you, I, I don't know if you knew this, he's directing a movie version of The Munsters. That makes perfect sense. Like, that <laughs> sounds right up his alley. Well, and The Munsters, if you've ever watched that old TV show or if you look at like his take on it, it. Like, like, right? I loved it. The characters are – they look like the, the the Universal Studios horror monsters. Yeah, I mean, Herman yeah. Munster is Frankenstein from those movies. So as a kid, I was never able to like tease any of that apart from each other. I didn't yeah. know – you know, I didn't know how the monsters was separate or joined to those uh, Universal monsters. I don't think they're just, joined to them like in the same universe, but I, they are inspired by them. Right. Like, totally. Their look is totally inspired by them. And then Adam's family is inspired off of that. I mean, this yeah. stuff it has such a long backstory. Yeah. We've gone from something that was inspired by a thing that was inspired by this and it was inspired. Yeah. And it's still <laughs> it's really, relevant it, to this day. I and mean, it, and it all has that kind of vibe about it. It's got a common thread through yep. all of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, man, the monsters is so good. Well, we're about to get another, like I said, another iteration of that from Rob Zombie. I so. hope it's good. I hope it's good. Yeah. Cause uh, you know, stuff he does, I'm like, ah, hit and miss, but so that's it. That's our Dracula episode. That's uh, kind of all we had to say about it. Dracula. Um, Dracula, the children of the night. <laughs> what music they make. <laughs> I want to suck your hey now. I want uh, to smell your neck. <laughs> <laughs> you smell like you taste good. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Get out of here, butthole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, leave. Yeah, Beavis and Butthead. What do you think about? <laughs> about I don't know. We were talking about Beavis and Butthead. We were, we were before before the podcast started. So now it's not as random as it sounds. I think eventually I would like to come back and and look at like Powers of Darkness at some point. So to continue continue the Dracula story. I mean yeah. Dracula. I mean, well, you were mentioning we were talking about the monsters, but also we were talking about like. The Count from Sesame Street is totally made to look like Bela Lugosi's Dracula. Yes, like, yes. He's and then and then you get uh, that kind of that roundish face. Yeah, the and, roundest and the, and the, and the, the big widow's eyes. Peak yeah, the, the widow's peak. And he's dressed in a tux and cape. And yeah. that and that very specific collar. Yeah, uh, on that on the cape, which is yep. the one that you see in all the Halloween stores. Yeah, uh, every year. Absolutely. So that's where that came from. Is and then Francis the Ford Coppola monsters. gave us his take on Dracula, which just had a big ass on his head. <sighs> What the hell was going on in that movie? That is a sh- – I mean we're going to add 20 more minutes onto the podcast. Yeah, we, yeah, we need about- to stop while we're ahead. Oh, so man. Let's, hey, check it out, folks. <laughs> we are really getting into some really interesting ideas coming up uh, from the publishing house for the podcast. We've got a lot coming for you, and we've got – I think we have some stuff coming up on the horizon that are going to be really, really excited. I don't want to say too much right now. I just want to tell you to keep an eye out for it. Um, we have most of, if not all of our 2022, 2023, uh, titles available and we talk about them. We're releasing covers as the covers get done. Um, so, but they're all available for either order if they're out now or pre-order if they're coming out soon. So, uh, don't forget that our tales of sleigh house is open for its annual anthologies. Um, so we're, we're definitely wanting to get, 
more of those in. We've got the U Train, the contest winners, U Train by Casey Griffin coming up uh, in just a little while. And we have another contest winner who's going to be coming up. I think we might, we were originally going to try and do both in July, but I think for his, we're going to, we might want to try and release that closer to when the anthology is released to right. kind of space it out and give you guys a, so that's a few months away. It's in October around Halloween. So I think we're going to, um, to try and try and balance that. So you guys have a really good understanding of what we're doing and what we're kind of looking at. Um, we're going to be talking about Frankenstein next episode. Uh, hopefully Trevor will be back with us for that one. And finally, I'd like to welcome Evine Deerhart to Slay House. She is a uh, an avid book reader. She is a creative writing person here at the University of Arkansas. Um, and she will be helping us on social media with interaction and marketing. And so she's a, a great welcome addition to hopefully kind of keep getting our name out there and getting yeah, us exposure. Yeah, you can't use too much help in that area. Especially um, when it's – yeah. my opinion. Yeah, no, you absolutely cannot, especially <laughs> when you're growing like we are. And I know yeah. we've been doing this for right at about a year now, but I still feel like we're growing. We're growing in the right direction, but yeah. there's always room for improvement. So. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Um, stay well, everyone, and we will see you next time.